Context. Context is useful. Context is useful when it comes to a visiting preacher. And one of the reasons we had an interview was you had context for who I am. You know something about me. You know where I'm from, I think. You know what I do, sort of. And as we come to look at Daniel chapter 4, because we're breaking into one of the regular series that you would have preaching here at Charlotte, it's really important that we do the same. Because on its own, this chapter that we're going to look at, Daniel 4, can sound fairly ridiculous and irrelevant. There are people with strange names who are having strange dreams which are strangely fulfilled. But when we get some context, it begins to bring things into focus. And we discover that something that was written over two and a half thousand years ago has stunning relevance for us today. So let's start with the big picture. I want to place this in its context. Bear with me. Uh, if you will. And this again is where you're going to have to look to the side. I was really hoping, because I think that's a great big screen. It's super. But you can't see the big screen because of the bulb, so you'll just need to turn sideways if we could go on there, because we're going to have a brief history of Middle Eastern superpowers, which I know is what you wanted, what you were aching to hear uh, on this Sunday morning. Let's continue. But just to give some context, there are a number of superpowers uh, in the region, the Egyptian Empire sort of really kicked it off. Egypt's got lots of money and wealth because the Nile was regularly flooded. That meant they had food. That meant they had people. Um, the capital of Egypt there, Memphis, just in case you're thinking that Elvis uh, lived in Egypt. No, that's, that's Tennessee uh, in the state. So you've got the Egyptian Empire that sort of ran from about 2000 to 1200 BC. Then you have the Kingdom of Israel. If you did your Bible stories as a kid, you'd have heard of King David and his rule, all centered around the capital, Jerusalem, and that ran from about 1000 BC to around about 900 BC. Then as we move on, uh, we come to the Assyrian Empire, around about 900 to 650 BC, centered on Nineveh. It was under this particular superpower that the uh, nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, um, the 10 northern tribes were, were conquered by the Assyrians, and they were scattered to other parts. Uh, and really themselves didn't return as an entity. But then after the Assyrians, we have the Babylonian or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, around about 620 BC to 540 BC, centered, as you'd imagine, on Babylon. And it was during when they were the kids on the block that southern Israel, the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they were conquered, they were captured by the Babylonians, but rather than being scattered, they were taken, at least a group of them were taken en masse, uh, going on a long circular trip, if you look at that map, actually passing near Aleppo that we've seen in the news because of the Syrian conflict, and uh, going and settling as a group, as a mass, in Babylon, where they were for at least 70 years before some started returning and being established again, as Jeremiah himself had prophesied. And this is the period at which we are looking. It was Daniel and his friends who, in 605 BC, were taken 
when Nebuchadnezzar first uh, beat up uh, that particular part of the region, they were taken to Babylon. Let's move on. So when you read the book of uh, Daniel, you'll find there's lots of picture language and visions, and it is to do with four kingdoms. God speaks and says there's going to be four major kingdoms, inevitably the Babylonians, then he speaks about the Medes and Persians, and then the kingdom of Greece, uh, sort of to the top left in your picture, and then Rome became the mighty power during which time the Lord Jesus Christ himself was born. So again, when you're reading through that particular book, there is a reference being made to these four kingdoms. Let's continue on. Um, you probably won't see that timeline. Uh, I was trying to put some context in from where this was all happening. Uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, put a, a yellow slash there. That gives you some idea of when the events in Daniel 4 were happening. Let, let's move on from that. That print's a bit small. But what I, I do want you to see as we come to this book, there is a particular literary division to the book. Let's have the first divisions. It is written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew and it is written in Aramaic. Hebrew, the language that was spoken by the people of Judah, Aramaic or Chaldean as it was, that was spoken by the Babylonians, which had more of a, an international currency. And the book is divided in that way. But that symmetrical difference uh, continues. Let's go on to the next little section here, because when you take the Aramaic section, as so often happens in the Bible, it isn't a higgledy-piggledy collection of and then this happened and then this happened. There is a very deliberate um, composition and so you see this. There is a symmetry uh, about the Aramaic section. So, for example, chapter 2 and chapter 7. You have chapter 2, the vision of the four-part statue. Chapter 7, the symmetry, the vision of the four beasts. Or take chapters 3 and chapter 6. Chapter 3, God delivers from a furnace. Chapter 6, God delivers from lions. And again, all of you here who are children... Uh, who have children and grandchildren uh, know well the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It is part of a very deliberate structure to this book. Now, we are looking at Daniel chapter 4, and that is part of a section, the central section of this book, where God saves a king. We are going to be looking at the conversion, the salvation of King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes to know Almighty God for himself. But as we conclude what I'm going to be saying, we'll also notice that God judges a king. There is another king we have to make reference to if we are being fair to this book. Let's just uh, carry on again just very briefly. I suggested to, to Barbara that we didn't read the whole chapter. That would have been quite lengthy, probably confusing. But just to give you a very quick overview of Nebuchadnezzar 4. It's an introduction. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I want everyone to know about this. He describes how he had a dream and then he wanted an interpretation. We're told how Daniel hears of the dream uh, and this dream is about a massive tree that's cut down and it moves this tree from being a tree to being a man to being an animal. Uh, and then as you see there, Daniel interprets that dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, actually, you're the tree that you've dreamt about, and then the dream comes true. Uh, and then after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is restored. So that's Daniel chapter 4. So I hope you've managed to put it in some sort of context so we understand what is being done. Let, let's go on. 
So the question is, so what? This is, may or may not have been slightly interesting in understanding something of what was happening two and a half thousand years ago, but <laughs> here we are, 2017, in Edinburgh. So what? So what about these things happening? Well, could I suggest to you that these things have remarkable re relevance? You see, this is a chapter of contrasts. If you go through the chapter, you will see it goes from trees to stumps. It goes from kings to animals. It come, goes from the high to the low. It goes from madness to sanity. It goes from arrogance to humility. And I want to draw out three contrasts that emerge in this chapter that relate to each one of us here. The first contrast is the contrast between imagination and reality. The contrast between imagination and reality. Because there can be an enormous gulf between what we think about ourselves and what the truth actually is. The contrast between imagination and reality. Let me try and illustrate this. Uh, let's go on, please. Now, some of you will uh, recognize, some of you probably won't recognize, but this is Kanye West, um, or as he may be called, Mr. Kim Kardashian. But, but just look at some of the things this, this guy has said. He said, when you're the absolute best, you get hated on the most. This is what he's claiming for himself. Now, let me immediately say, I think Kanye West is gifted and is good at what he does. But he is saying, as he goes on to say, I am the number one human being in music. Here's Kanye West. I'm the number one in music. But then the reality kicks in. Let's go to the next slide. Um, I know probably most of you avidly watch Glastonbury when it comes on. Um, but a couple of years ago, he was headlining at Glastonbury, and he decided to give a performance of Queen's song, Bohemian Rhapsody, one of the great classics of the 70s. And it was dreadful. It was awful. It was universally panned. Everyone there heard that the guy couldn't sing, let alone remember the lyrics. And here is the one who says, look at me, I'm the greatest thing in music. No, actually, there is a contrast between what you imagine about yourself and what the reality is. Let's take another character to illustrate what I mean. There's Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He is the Swedish international footballer. He's currently on Man United's books. Zlatan, there is a whole library of quotes that have come from Zlatan's mouth. I love this. One thing is for sure, a World Cup without me is nothing uh, to watch. Uh, let's go to the next one. I can't help but laugh at how perfect I am. Um, this is one of my favorites. When asked uh, what he got his wife for her birthday, nothing. She already has Zlatan. Husbands, just remember that. That's, that, that, that just could be a, a useful enough uh, one. And then uh, this one, he was having a discussion with a reporter. The reporter said, who will win the World Cup playoff? Zlatan said, only God knows. The reporter says, it's kind of hard to ask him. Zlatan says, why? You're looking at him now. That's arrogance. 
awful arrogance. But he made a mistake. He landed badly in a game. He wasn't touched by the opposition. He jumped for the ball. He landed badly, suffered a double knee injury. He's been out for a year. He's just on the point of coming back uh, to play for United. But here is the one who said, I'm like God. Zlatan, you're injured. You're weak. The reality doesn't tie in with your imagination, your understanding of who you are. Or let's now take Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4, verses 29 to 30, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, and did you notice what he said? Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. You hear what he's saying. He is declaring, I am the greatest. And of all the people to occupy human history, Nebuchadnezzar certainly was one of those who could claim top bragging rights. Historian Stephen Miller said this, and let's go to the next slide and see something of this. Historian Stephen Miller said Babylon was one of the preeminent cities of history. And during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, undoubtedly was the most magnificent and probably the largest city on earth. Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another defensive double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick, east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. This guy knew what he was doing. Remarkable. You have a tram system in Edinburgh. We've been talking about it in Bristol for the last 30 years. But here is Nebuchadnezzar. He does these remarkable things. Or take historian John Whitcomb. He said this, The city was dominated by a seven-story ziggurat, 288 feet high, known as the Tower of Babylon. By the way, not that Tower of Babylon from uh, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis uh, 11, but this was another Tower of Babylon. Nearly 60 million fired bricks were used to construct this huge tower, each stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name. Actually, let's go to the next picture. Uh, he did so many of these uh, bricks, you can find them still today. 60 million bricks for this tower, each stamped with his name. And on top of it stood the Temple of Marduk, containing a solid gold statue of Marduk, which weighed, get this, 52,000 pounds. That's weight of solid gold. Certainly according to 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus. Nebuchadnezzar also built at least three palaces. Nebuchadnezzar constructed the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon as a gift to his wife, uh, Amitris. This guy, of all guys, could claim, I'm the greatest. And we're not even beginning to take into consideration his military campaigns and his numerous conquests. He really was a remarkable person. 
And if we were to limit our view of things to life on this tiny planet, then we might agree. Nebuchadnezzar, you really were one of the most amazing people. But the reality is bigger, far bigger. Daniel 4, verses 31 to 32. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. You get it? You think you're the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, but you haven't even begun to take into consideration the King of Kings, the Most High, the Sovereign God. For my friends, there is one who creates and sustains and directs all things everywhere, and if you don't take him into account, then your assessment of yourself is sheer fantasy. You see, if you erect as your benchmark what you see in others around you, then you may well actually be sitting here with a pretty high opinion of yourself. Maybe you're sitting here, I know the students are, are away at a weekend, most of them, but, but maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, actually, I, I'm more intelligent than most. You know, I got good grades. I'm here at uni. I'm here at Edinburgh. I, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sharp. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, actually, I'm, I'm richer than most. I've got a good job. I work in the city here in Edinburgh. I've got a reasonable salary. I have good prospects. I am respected. I am revered by my colleagues. I'm doing okay. Or maybe you're saying, well, actually, I'm, I'm more respectable than most. You've maybe wandered the streets of Edinburgh, particularly during the festivals and so on, and you see people getting wasted. And you say to yourself, well, I'm not like that. I'm okay. I'm decent. I treat others well. I'm, I'm a good person. You see, basically, your assessment of yourself may not be that you're the greatest, but you're not that bad, actually, are you? Actually, let's, let's be honest. You think of yourself quite highly, especially when compared to others. You're okay, aren't you? You're decent. You're good. But my friends, that fails to take into account how things really are, not as you'd like them to be. The reality is that there is a God to whom you are accountable, a God of infinite holiness, a God of infinite power and knowledge. And as you stand before him, your perspective alters. You're no longer the big tree looking down on others. You're the broken stump looking up helplessly. On screen, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see 
something that is above you. See, there is the contrast between imagination and reality. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the greatest, and then God gave him a vision of himself. My friends, we need that. We need that. But then, secondly, having looked at that first big contrast, the second contrast I want us to look at is the contrast between what I deserve and what I receive. The contrast between what I deserve and what I receive. You see, Nebuchadnezzar would not have been in the running for the Nobel Peace Prize or any humanitarian awards, though maybe the way the United Nations is going, they may have appointed him as an ambassador to something, but basically he was a cruel egomaniac. Just listen to what he did when he destroyed Jerusalem and captured its king. Again, it will be on screen, it's from Jeremiah 39, from verse 5 running to 7. They said they captured him, that is Zedekiah the king, and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. That is cruel and wicked in the extreme. And in the previous chapter to chapter 4, there in Daniel 3, you'll see how this egomaniac constructed a massive gold statue of himself. And he ordered everyone to bow down to it. And when three of them didn't, this is what happened again on screen. Daniel 3, verses 19 to 23. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I'm not here going to be talking about their amazing deliverance. I want you to understand the amazing cruelty and wickedness of a man who would get so upset that three people didn't bow down to him. This is Nebuchadnezzar. So actually, when we get to our chapter, Daniel chapter 4, we see something of Daniel's courage when he addressed Nebuchadnezzar like this, chapter 4, verse 27. Therefore, says Daniel, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You see, the king was seriously evil. He wouldn't be your number one candidate to be a follower of Almighty God. If you were saying, if Nebuchadnezzar came in here, I don't think you would say, hey, what a great church member for Charlotte Chapel. But God, in his amazing grace, chose to show his love and mercy towards this most undeserving of people. And we don't know why. There's nothing in Nebuchadnezzar to merit such love. But that's what 
God does. That's his nature. Our God is a God of grace who delights to bless and receive totally undeserving people. And you know what? You and I fall into that category. Measured against God's infinite holiness, all our actions actually put us in the same group as Nebuchadnezzar. You're in that group. You're in that category. It's not a case that you could say, oh, could there be a separate group for me to stand in because I'm not as bad as Nebuchadnezzar? No. Alongside the infinite holiness of God, we are bundled together with this guy, with this sinner, with this failure. My friends, our only hope is grace. Our only hope is mercy. Our only hope is to put our complete trust in God's rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he achieved for sinners by dying in their place on a cross. There is nothing we can do to merit such favor. There is nothing we can do to remove the record of our wrong. There is nothing we can do to beautify our disfigurement before him. And that just fills me with amazement and gratitude. To know that whoever you are, whatever you've done, there's hope for you in the grace of God. Look, I don't know many of you here at Charlotte. And maybe there's some of you, you've come here this morning and you just feel dirty. There's no other word for it. You feel a failure. This last week has been a dreadful week for you in a whole number of ways. And actually you're thinking, what am I doing sitting in this church? I don't deserve this. My friends, I want you to understand that there is hope, that there is grace, that there is mercy, that there is love in the Lord Jesus Christ for you. If God could save someone like Nebuchadnezzar, my friends, he can save someone like you in all your failure and in all your need. There's our second contrast, the contrast between what I deserve and what I receive. But my third, my final contrast is this. It is the contrast between God's patience and God's judgment. The contrast between God's patience and God's judgment. You see, despite his great power and evident wisdom and his planning, Nebuchadnezzar didn't seem to be the quickest at grasping what God was saying to him. For example, in in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets a dream with stunning accuracy, the result of which were these words, Daniel 2 verse 47. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Great Nebuchadnezzar, you've got that right, so you're going to follow him? No, he doesn't. He didn't get it. But God still doesn't go give up on him. And then in chapter 3, when God does miraculously rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a blazing furnace, right in front of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, this is his response, chapter 3, verses 28 to 29. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any national language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. So Nebuchadnezzar, shouldn't you follow him? But he doesn't. He still doesn't get it. 
and God still doesn't give up on him. And then in our chapter, chapter 4, Daniel interprets another dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he warns him of the consequences of ignoring its message. There was this dream, a tree and uh, a man and an animal, and Daniel says, it's you. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar gets it? No, not a chance. So God deals with Nebuchadnezzar to humble him. He loses rational sense. He becomes like an animal, like uh, eating grass, like an ox. Today we'd call his condition boanthropy or lycanthropy. But after seven years, this happens. Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. What patience from God. Nebuchadnezzar finally is saved. He comes to acknowledge and he comes to follow the living God after all those warnings, after all those alarm bells. God's patience. And could I say that could be the way that God's been dealing with you? Giving you chance upon chance to turn to him? You've actually heard words like this before. They're not new to you. You've been challenged like this before. But you think you can just go on ignoring God until you feel that the time is right. Maybe there's someone who's come in here for the first time this morning. Again, I don't know. I don't know who you are. And, And it may be that God has been speaking to you and dealing with you. And all the time you're going, no, I'm going to hold out against him. No, 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 no. Well, look, please notice that the book of Daniel balances God's patience towards Nebuchadnezzar with God's swift judgment upon King Belshazzar in the following chapter. And the writer intends you to see the connection between these two chapters. Even though actually there's about 36 years between, the writer is saying, I want you to see this. I want you to get it. You see, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC. There are four brief reigns by other individuals. Belshazzar takes control in 553 BC. And in chapter 5, it picks up the story in 539 BC. And one night, then in 539, God, without warning, intervenes in King Belshazzar's life. He is told his time is up. We read this, Daniel 5, verses 30 to 31. That very night, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You see, that's it for Belshazzar. God's judgment fell. There were no warnings for him. No dreams until that mysterious vision of a hand writing on a wall immediately followed by its fulfillment. We are told that very night, that very night, this is not God's patience as we've seen with Nebuchadnezzar. This is God's judgment falling upon Belshazzar. That very night, God's judgment fell. And you, my friends, have no right to presume that you'll enjoy God's patience rather than his swift judgment. He is speaking. God is speaking. God is calling you to follow him. 
and with all the urgency I can muster here this morning, my friend, if you are holding out against God, if you are not committing your life to follow him, to know the peace that comes through Jesus Christ, if you are presuming on the patience of God, then I must say, my friend, be very, very careful. We cannot presume on the patience of God for we see God's judgment suddenly descending upon King Belshazzar. My friends, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, this morning is an opportunity for you to turn to him and find him and know him and love him and respond to him. This is not a time to turn away. Here is the contrast. May you understand where you really stand. May you have a fresh understanding of the God who rules and reigns. May you have an understanding of his grace and goodness. That even towards failures like me and you, the offer of salvation comes. Do not let it pass by, but seek him. And after we've sung our next song, Paul will be able to tell you more ways in which you can respond if you want to, more ways you can find out more about such a saviour. Let's pray.